0: Let's pray together. Father, it is our delight to sing of your grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Spirit, the truth of your Word. These things lift our souls and give us great sustenance. We pray, Father, this morning that we would yield our hearts and minds to you, that we would submit ourselves to your Spirit, that your Spirit would teach us, that your Word would guide us that we would proclaim the excellencies, Your excellencies, the excellencies of Christ empowered by Your Spirit in accordance with the truth of Your Word. We pray that, that You would be pleased, that Your body would be built. We pray, Father, for anyone among us that has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that even in these moments, Your Spirit would do His work of regeneration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine you were house-sitting for someone. After you settle in, you look around and think, it's kind of dark in here. So you decide you'll paint some walls to brighten things up a little bit. When you're finished with that, you think, I really feel so closed in, just... It feels really tight in here. I think I'm going to blow out a wall. And I'm going to get that open concept thing going on here. And so you get that done. You think, all right, I'm feeling better about things. And then you start looking around and you think, this furniture just doesn't fit my taste that well. It's a little too antique for me. And so you start to remove the furniture and replace it with things that really suit your palate very well. Now you have it just the way you want it. And the homeowners come back. Can you imagine their surprise when they realize that you took seriously what they said when they said, ni casa su casa? And they're, they're uh, not very pleased with your design in their house. None of us would do this. None of us would do that. No one, no one would do that. This morning, as we look at this text of Scripture, Galatians chapter 1, verses 11-17, through 17, what we want to understand is the Gospel doesn't belong to us. God is its owner and originator. And because God is the owner and originator of the Gospel, we have no right to rearrange it. No right whatsoever. As we've been covering this book, we've only been... In our study of Galatians for a few weeks now, we've seen some some glorious truths about the Gospel, about God's grace, and I want just very briefly to recap what we've seen thus far. Paul has already told us that he himself has been called out by God for this ministry of the Gospel. So he's told us that right in the beginning. And then he lets us know that God's blessing produces deliverance, both now and now. And in the future, he tells us that going beyond the gospel is going beyond God. He's told us that any swaying or shifting of the gospel is a distortion of the gospel. So we must preach the gospel in its purity. He's told us that the Gospel has been firmly established. Now, He doesn't use those words, but He tells us, if we, or an angel from heaven, comes and preach any other Gospel to you than that which we have already preached to you, let him be accursed. So, the Gospel's been firmly established. It's, it's not swayable. He tells us that distorting the Gospel warrants condemnation. And then finally, thus far in our study, we've seen that the Gospel, the gospel is the basis of our standing with God. Which is why he says, Am I here to please men? Or to please God? If I were to please, still please men, like he did in his former life, if I were to still please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. In other words, you can't please men instead of God and think that that's okay. When we choose men and their ways over God and His We're really choosing sides. In the next section, verses 11-17, through the primary concept that Paul makes is that God is the owner of the Gospel. Essentially, what that tells us is that we have no right to mess with it. Let's take a look again. We read this in our responsive reading, but let's read through the Scripture again. I'll read. Please follow along in your copy of the Scriptures. The Bible says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the Gospel that was preached by me is... Not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But, it's one of those glorious buts in Scripture. But, when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me or in me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. You can see the emphasis here that he gives of this is not men's gospel. They didn't give it to me. They didn't train me in it when God who rescued me from me and my efforts and, and set me free and gave me real life, when that took place, I didn't go and ask anyone, hey, what do you think of this Gospel? Because he received it from Christ. And therefore, it didn't need authentication from any man. His emphasis is very strongly that God owns the Gospel, that God is the originator of the Gospel, and that God is in charge of the gospel. So, first item of our consideration is that the Gospel originates with God. Verse 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the Gospel that was preached by me is not man's Gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to think about this. Man's Gospel would never... Humiliate man and exalt God. That's not the way man's gospel goes. Man's gospel tells us something about something good inside of us. There's a spark of divinity. There's untapped potential. We we could be anything we want in this whole world. And they really, really mean that. God is in the minds of many, an ogre in the sky who is ready to rain down lightning bolts at the smallest infraction that displeases Him. You can never really be sure how He'll react to you. And you can't really be sure of your standing with Him. Try it out. Ask someone, Hey, Hey, where will you spend eternity when you die? If they're religious and they don't know the gospel, they'll say, well, I hope, I hope I'll be in heaven. Why do they hope so? Well, because that's where everyone, everyone that has a God consciousness wants to end up. I hope I'll make it. Well, what will you base that hope upon? Well, I know that Jesus died for me, but you know, I really need to, and I must, and I have to, You can see the the distortion of the gospel. Now, what we recognize different from man's gospel is God's gospel. God's gospel is altogether different. God's gospel proclaims man's utter, utter, utter inability. That's what God's gospel does. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. While you're turning there, I'll remind you of a couple of phrases from a couple of other scripture passages. In Ephesians chapter 2 we're told that we were what? dead in trespasses and sins. Every time I read that and I know that it just reproves the weirdness of my mind, I think of Pirates of the Caribbean and the ride and you're, you're going around the corner and there's the mist that comes down i don't know if you've seen this and there's this little hologram up there they're shining this thing and it's it's some like davy jones or something and, and he says dead men tell no tales and it's really cool it's everyone's a happy part so you bring your kids on there and hope they don't cry when that part takes place dead men not only do they not tell tales they don't do anything they're dead that doesn't sound like man's gospel Man's gospel says, you, you, you must do, you, you have to, you must, you fill in the blanks, you know the rest of them. God says, you were dead, dead, and you had nothing to offer me. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that we were enemies, enemies of God. That means we opposed everything he stood for, everything he is, and everywhere he, he was leading us. We said, no thank you, we want our own way, enemies. Enemies. Here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, listen to what God's Word has to say. Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are what? What? Under sin. sin. Now, is that a popular message in the 21st century? Was it a popular message in the 20th century? Was it a popular message in the 1st century? Was it a popular message when Jesus said it? No. Whited sepulchres. Remember, he said that? They were really happy. They took up stones to stone him. All under sin. Verse 10: As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one. You see this? No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Now, what is he talking about? Does he mean every human soul that doesn't know Jesus only does worthless things? There are plenty of people that don't know Jesus as their Savior that do kind things. It's not saying that they're doing something worthless in, in life. If you feed someone who's hungry, it's not worthless. If you help someone who's needy, it's not worthless. He's talking about worthless regarding your righteousness. Worthless regarding your relationship with God. We have all together become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Look a little further down at verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in this sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God's Gospel proclaims man's utter inability. We're dead, we're lost, we're at enmity with God, and we, we can't do anything that pleases Him of our own resources. That's God's Gospel. God's gospel also proclaims the insufficiency of good works. Again, it's not to say that good works aren't aren't nice. It's not to say they're not beneficial to someone. It's not even to say they're not beneficial to your own mental well-being. It is. When you do something for someone else, you're mentally stimulated. It's a good thing. You feel good. It just doesn't do anything spiritual for you. Your good works do not make you right with God. That is the concept. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean. And listen, this is so opposite of man's logic. All our righteous deeds, all the goody things we do, are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our... Iniquities like the wind take us away. The Bible tells us a very familiar passage, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's God's gift. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. God's gospel exalts him and shows us our insufficiency and the insufficiency of our efforts. Titus 3:5 says this, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the holy spirit. You know, you can't make that happen. You can't tell the spirit, "Hey, hey, come on over here, I need some washing," as if he's going to obey you. He's God. You can't control him. Jesus made the self-same statement in John chapter 3. The wind blows where it wills, and we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. What is he talking about? He says, the, the, spirit, the spirit is his own divine entity. He's one with the Father, but he is his own divine entity, and he does what he wants. And then he, he gives us the, the, the great statement that I bring out regularly That which is born of the flesh, efforts, is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, that is spiritual. When the spirit does something, that's when it has real results. Take a look at Colossians chapter 2. So we recognize man's good works are insufficient, utterly insufficient for salvation, for justification, for the, the removal of our sin, that's the first part of justification, and the addition of righteousness, that's the second aspect of justification. Our works are insufficient to produce the removal of our sin and the addition of real, genuine, eternal righteousness. So we, we recognize that. That's very clear. It doesn't stop there, folks. It doesn't stop there. The gospel pervades and drives the entire Christian life. So much so that even as a a born-again believer, you've received life from above. You've received the Spirit's regenerating work. The Spirit dwells in you. Even as a believer, your own efforts, your fleshly desire to do what the Word says still results... In filthy garments, polluted garments. Listen to what Paul is dealing with in the book of Colossians. We've covered this together. Start reading, please, in verse 20. Colossians 2 and verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as though you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So he gives some examples. Do not handle... Do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, listen carefully, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, that is the, the denial of the body and the the desires of the flesh, denying our own desires and severity to the body. But, listen, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You you can say, yes, I I can discipline myself and and I won't won't indulge my flesh. And you know what? There'll be some other manifestation of your flesh that'll come forth. You may stop this activity. You have enough self-will Self-determination, discipline. You can do that. You can stop this particular activity. But if, that's, if it's done by you, guess what? The, the flesh will rear its ugly head in another form. Whether it be pride, arrogance, judgmentalism, whatever it is. So he's condemning self-made religion. He's condemning this as a practice to get rid of the indulgences of the flesh. He tells us to deal with that different ways what is that by the spirit well we see that all over the context of scripture from genesis to revelation that it's god who works in you both to will there's the desire and to do of his good pleasure so we recognize that there are things that the lord changes in our lives through his spirit but it's not through self-made religion He says earlier in this same context, verses 16 and 17, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. There's the essence right there. It's Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you that meets the demands of the Father, that makes you accepted because of the Beloved. It's Christ that makes you pleasing to the Father. And so we recognize this back in the, the context of Galatians. He says, listen, this is not man's Gospel. Man's Gospel has a different way. It's completely contrary to God's Gospel. God's Gospel humiliates us. Why? Well, it, it does other things too because it recognizes God, in, in all of my insufficiencies, in all of my brokenness, and all of my failure, and all of my sinfulness, and in all of the, the ways in which I was uh, an enemy of you, when I was saying no to you, in the face of all that, Jesus died for me. Jesus took my place. Jesus became my sin. Jesus hung on the cross and was charged... Guilty for what I have done? God poured his wrath out on him, so I would never have to experience the wrath of God. So the the gospel humiliates us, and it also, when we recognize what it is, it gives us this sense of you 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 can't even you couldn't even be serious. You would do this for me? It, It lifts us right out of the pit. It places us into a relationship with God that we could never produce. Paul was wrapped up in man's gospel. We'll see that in a couple of moments in verses 13 and 14. He was wrapped up. It it consumed his entire life until he met Jesus. For that setting, and this will help us with the rest of our study of this passage this morning, I want for us to read a lengthy passage In the book of Acts, chapter 9, please. Acts, chapter 9. I want us to read a lengthy passage here. And what this will do is it will help us to see. It will remind us of something we know. And it will set the tone for this Saul of Tarsus who was wrapped up in man's gospel and then Jesus entered his world. And nothing, nothing for Paul, was ever the same after that. It's an incredible reality. It makes us ask the question, have have I met Jesus like this? To where everything that I once held dear has, has sunk down to far less significance as I've seen what is really valuable and worthy, which is God Himself Particularly as we behold his glory in the revelation of Jesus Christ as God's Spirit illuminates our minds. Take a look, please, at Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats in murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen me, or he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That's how we would, you know, that's how we would respond, right? But you want me to go and talk to, to him? I know what he's done. Why would you want me to talk to him? Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, he sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What, what's going on? Like We know the story, so it doesn't shock us anymore. Like We've read this. And sometimes with familiarity, we start to lose the charge of something so potent. We're talking about Saul of Tarsus, and Saul reminds us of who he is time and time again. This is me. In my flesh, this is what I do. I'm a blasphemer, I'm injurious, I'm a persecutor of the church. That's me. That's who I am. He doesn't say, well, let me tell you about my storied past. And I want you to think well of me. He's condemning Himself all along. Because man's Gospel leads us to do fleshly things. And God is not pleased. He's not pleased even when that flesh is intending, intending to please Him. Paul, Saul, met Jesus, and everything changed. The gospel that man conceives would never approach Saul of Tarsus. Never. Think about vehement opponents of Christ in this day. Think about them. How willing would you and I be to go up and to speak the gospel truth to them? Wow, they were, already, you know, they were already far gone. They, you know, they already preach another gospel. I'm just, I'm just going to leave them alone. That's not what happened here, folks. Jesus met Saul, and the rest is history. The gospel that man conceives is different. It was conceived, this gospel was conceived in the mind of God before the world was created. Our mind, in our way, is finite, but God is infinite. He knows the end from the beginning. Listen, folks, the, the main essence, the gospel originates with God. Secondly, as we go back to Colossians, excuse me, Galatians chapter one, the gospel can change the most ardent opponent. Now we've already started the process of covering that point. The gospel can change the most ardent opponent. Paul gives his testimony, and it was not glorious. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He persecuted the church of God. Now you'll remember we just read, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? That is how intimately tied Jesus is to his church. Remember this. The reason we have a standing with God is because of our union with Christ. And Christ has no problem calling that out here in Acts chapter 9, as well as in Hebrews chapter 2, where he says, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. It's just beautiful. Jesus changes... Everything. And because of our union with Christ, when someone persecutes the church, they're persecuting God Himself or Jesus Himself. He did this violently, trying to destroy it. Now, we've seen these in, in times past. Acts chapter 22 and verse 4, Paul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. In Acts twenty six eleven, he gives this testimony again, and I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. I tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And we already read in Acts chapter nine and verse one. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Listen, he was no joke. He was no joke. I want us to read one more of Paul's testimonies, please. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I have two favorites of Paul's testimonies. And there are many records of the testimonies. This is one of my favorites. Philippians 3 is another one. We're not going to spend time there this morning. It kills me not to, but we're not going to. 1 Timothy chapter 1. This testimony is, if we can read it as if we were reading it for the first time, it is breathtaking. Listen to what he writes. He, in verses eight and following, he talks about how the law is good and how it can the, the law really causes us to, to, to be moral in the sense of um, not, not killing people. so it's good, it has its place if it's used lawfully, then he talks about the fact that but that the law won't, the law won't get it done. He says in verse eleven, in accordance with the gospel of the glory, uh, excuse me, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's been entrusted with the gospel because the gospel saves, the law doesn't. Verse 12 is where he comes to his testimony. He gives himself as an exhibit A of what the gospel does. I thank him, God, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and an insolent man and he used his mouth in a way that was blasphemous and and harmful but i received mercy because i had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in christ jesus the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that christ jesus Came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Now, you could stop reading there, but it would not be a complete testimony. Verse 17. Verse 17 completes the testimony. The first thing out of his mouth, after he says that God gloriously saved me, the chiefest of sinners, as an example to others so that others would believe on him, he says this To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, from. From breathing out blasphemies to penning and breathing out doxologies. Praise be to God. This is what he says. It's, it's not me. It's not about me. I didn't change myself. I didn't fix myself. And I still don't fix myself. It's a, it's a work of God. Remember, we, we talked about it last week, that salvation has three main aspects that you can talk about. A past, present, and future, right? Past, Justification present, sanctification, future, glorification. All of them, all of them are only accomplished by the divine. I don't get credit for my justification. I don't get credit and don't want any for my sanctification. And I don't get credit and I don't want any for my glorification. I want one. One, one, to get the glory. That's God Himself through Christ and the Spirit. That, that oneness of the triune God. I want them to be glorified in the, the salvation of my soul. It should be the, the heartbeat of the one who knows God and who really understands the sanctifying, glorifying, justifying work that comes through Jesus Christ. Here's Paul from blaspheming, to testifying of God's glory. Back in Galatians, he says, I was so extremely zealous, listen carefully, for the traditions of my fathers. The traditions of my fathers. This this is the way that a good, orthodox Pharisee lives. We do these things. And you'll remember, he was very good at it. In accordance with men, Paul was considered blameless. So he was good at it. Remember what he called it? Dung. So something interesting happens. From being extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers, something different has happened. Only by God's divine intervention, he had something else that was Driving him. Listen to what he says now in verse 16. Back in Galatians 1 and verse 16. That I might preach him among the Gentiles. That I may preach him among the Gentiles. Rather than being zealous for the traditions of his fathers, Paul transitioned by God's grace to be one who proclaimed God himself who is the essence of of the gospel. Only one thing can do this, folks. Only one thing, one person with that one thing can do this. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first, and also to the greek for in it the gospel the righteousness of god is revealed from faith i like to faith better than for faith but however your bible reads it from faith to faith as it is written the just shall what live by the law live by the traditions of our fathers live by the traditions of a church live by good deeds that are that are originating from the bible No! Living by faith. God's God's work in us through faith will result in the demonstration of what we read in the Bible. The righteous requirements of of the law are fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So, So we will see the demonstration of what God has revealed. We will when we walk by faith. But too often, men's Gospel settles for putting the cart before the horse. Let's do this, we'll be spiritual. We'll do this, we'll be spiritual. No. doesn't work that way. The Spirit does this. When we're in the Spirit, then it, it'll, it'll demonstrate itself in this spiritual fruitfulness. A, a great verse of Scripture. You've, it's, it's a proverb right in the midst of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. What did God just say? So much so that you can change yourself from one racial background to another. Can't use gender anymore, right? Because people are doing that all the time, theoretically. Um, From one race to another, just the same as you can do that, you also can do good even though your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You see, God's word from beginning to end, it it was never about the law making us right. It was never about doing, do what God says and you'll be good. It was always about surrender to Him and He'll do that in you. It was always that way, which is why Noah walked with God. Abraham walked with God. You see, those that... Uh, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When someone walks with God, God produces the fruitfulness that he prescribes. It's not the cart before the horse. Um, We can never, we can never settle for a human solution, for a problem that requires divine intervention. Did you catch that? I know it's a very simple statement, but I, I I don't know that we're always catching it. We can never settle for a human solution to a problem that requires divine intervention. The gospel changes even the most ardent opponent. Divine intervention is necessary for changing the human heart throughout our lives. When the fruit of the spirit is displayed in our lives, I want you to think about this. We can be assured that something supernatural is taking place. I'll tell you, so many times I sat in lessons about the fruit of the Spirit and, and, and talk about, well, this is what love looks like and this is what love does, so now go and do love. This is what joy looks like. This is how joy is experienced. Now go and do joy. Now, they wouldn't say it with those words, but that's the essence. Now, I, I'll quote, and I won't give its origin of the quote, I was told at one point in my life to act like a Christian even if it's just an act. <sighs> I'm sure that the intention was right. Just really horrific statement to make. Okay. I don't, I don't want to act. I don't want you to act. Don't come here and act like a Christian. Don't. They're not doing anyone any good for you to come and act like a Christian. What we need, folks is we need supernatural work every time every every single time that we exhibit the fruit of the spirit a miracle has taken place D- don't miss that it's the fruit of the spirit it's his work that's in and of itself defined as miraculous it's supernatural don't ever settle for that which is not divine for something that requires the divine. The Gospel can change the most ardent opponent. And, And we see it. Here's Paul vehemently against the church, which Jesus said, vehemently against Christ. He's against Christ, he meets Christ, and everything's different. Why? Because the Gospel changes. It's the power of God unto salvation. Okay, so the Gospel originates with God. It can change the most vehement opponent or ardent opponent. Thirdly, and finally, The Gospel, I hope you believe this, accomplishes God's will. The Gospel accomplishes God's will. Take a look at verses 15 and following. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Here's the essence. But, but, all of Paul's efforts led him contrary to God, led him contrary to God's people, and led him contrary to God's Son, but God set him apart. Before he was born. Now Jeremiah said the same thing in Jeremiah one five, before I formed you in the womb I knew you, and before you were born I consecrated you. It means setting apart. I appointed you for a prophet to the nations. Listen, before you breathed a breath, before your parents breathed a breath, run it right down before Adam and Eve. Had God breathed into their nostrils the breath of life and man became a living spirit, God set some apart. He said, I will have this person. I will have this person. Set us apart. He says, "If, if that wasn't enough, if you didn't catch it there with the set me apart, He says, and called me by His grace. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. When was that? Before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. Read it. <laughs> you don't need any more explanations. It's right there. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to what? To his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, will himself confirm, will himself establish, or excuse me, strengthen, and will himself um, establish you. This, this is all a work of God's gracious call this is what he does this is who he is this is my god is he yours has he set you apart and called you by his grace he then says and was when when god was pleased to reveal his son to me you've met people that have said this with all the right intentions i've met people and i and i appreciate what they're saying when they say it if only i were saved earlier If only I had been saved when I were younger. All of these things that I've experienced between then and now, I wouldn't have experienced. And and I I want to tell you, there is no mistake about the timing that God reveals His Son to you. There's no mistake. When He's ready, it's happening. You better believe it. When God, who set me apart, who called me by His grace when He was pleased to reveal His Son to me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. When that took place, there was no stopping. I want you to look at a couple of passages with me. We'll do it, we'll do it uh, rather succinctly. Uh, Acts chapter 16, please. Beginning in verse 13, the Bible says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. Women, excuse me, women who had come together. One of who, or one who heard us, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. That's an interesting statement. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul, or to what was said by Paul. And after... She was baptized in her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, they went. (laughs) What's the big idea? This worshiper of God, Lydia, worshipped God but didn't know Jesus. Worshipped God, was not born again until God says, Light bulb, (laughs) you're going to come to know me and you're going to come to know me now. Immediately. This is the glory of God's work. Look a little further, please. At, uh, Acts chapter 13, verses 44 and following. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city, I wish this would still happen, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict and glorifying the Word of the Lord. And what happened? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. What is going on when He who was pleased to reveal His Son in me? That's what's going on. That's what's going on. Let's follow a little bit further. Take a look at John chapter 6. The Gospel is God's work. We have the privilege, first of hearing, by God's gracious intervention. We have embraced and we cling daily to this gospel that that has given us life and breath and all things that are real and good and helpful. This gospel is, is the privilege that we have to proclaim, and it is not our responsibility. To make a person believe, it can't happen. Only God opens the eyes. Here in John chapter six, beginning in verse thirty-five, the words of Jesus. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." But I said to you that, uh, you have, excuse me. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Listen carefully. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day when when He who separated me before I was born and called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me. Listen, maybe you're one of those that feels, ah, I wish that I had come to know Christ earlier in my life. I empathize with you, and I say, that's that's a good thought. But don't dismiss God's timing. Don't dismiss God's working. There's a reason He he plucked you out of the fire when He did. When He was pleased to reveal His Son in you, that is exactly when you came to know Christ as your Savior. This is a glorious thing, folks. This is a glorious thing. God's Word always accomplishes God's purposes. Always does. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11, "So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me, what? Empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it." It's a great verse of Scripture, and we, we, we love it. Now I want to ask you a question. Does everyone who hears the gospel embrace it? Is that verse now nullified? Of course, God, you must be wrong. I gave them the gospel and they didn't turn to you. Is there anything else that the gospel does aside from produce regeneration? Does it do produce something else as well? It sure does, folks. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, last passage of scripture for the morning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, the Bible says, But thanks be to God Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like some, or so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. Here's the image. He's giving us a bit of... uh, what to them would be very... they would understand exactly what he's getting at in the first century, according to many sources. The Roman troops when they defeated an enemy, when they started coming home, they would have their soldiers, and in the midst of that, there would be people in chains. These are prisoners of war, so to speak. And they're marching into the city. And the people would line the streets like a parade route, celebrating their, their army coming back. And in the air, there would be the fragrance of offering things to idols and all the things that they would do. And as they entered into that city, the soldiers are thinking, yes, a victory parade. I smell the aroma of our, of our celebration. And yet those in, in chains smelled something different than that. Because they knew ultimately they weren't going to hold them they were going to execute them. So that same smell that for the, the citizens of the city and for the armies coming back that was, was victorious and, and, and life-giving and exhilarating to these in chains was torturous. He knew it spelled the end. The Gospel both gives life and causes us to celebrate. And oftentimes, for so many, it's rejected, and it is the condemnation that they experience that will be theirs. It's a terror, terror to think of. But the gospel always accomplishes one of these two things it always accomplishes one, either life or condemnation to death, because it's presenting. The only thing that saves. Our proclamation of the gospel, as Paul has said, and we didn't really cover it terribly well, is a presentation of God himself. You'll remember, he said, when he who set me apart, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, he said that I might preach him. Him. Him among the Gentiles. The word preach is euangelion. It means the good news, to preach the good news of him. He is the good news. When we're preaching the gospel, we're preaching Christ, we're preaching God, we're preaching who God is. The presentation of the gospel is a presentation of God himself. To reject the gospel then is a rejection of God. So many are all too willing to accept God on their own terms that they have outlined whether that outline is tradition or religion, others modernity. You know, oh yeah, I, I I believe this, not so much that. I don't believe in supernatural things, so we're going to cut that out of the Bible. And then you get the post-modernity. But they don't. They go beyond. Well, I don't believe in supernatural stuff. I'm going to cut that out. They, they go so well. If 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 in a moment, and, and I hear that and it 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 resonates with my soul, that for me becomes truth. And so. In the preaching of this message, yes, I can, I can embrace that. You can preach that one. It doesn't quite hit me that right. you know that well, not so much. It's subjective. It's, it's listener uh, responsiveness. Sometimes, and many times, people fashion a God in their own image. This is what God should be like. I can't, I can't follow a God who would do this. Have you heard someone say that? Listen. When the gospel's preached, you're making a decision about God. Will you embrace him as he is and as he's portrayed in the gospel? Or you have some other thing in mind? Because the gospel belongs to God, because the gospel is a proclamation of God, because the gospel can change anyone, because the gospel accomplishes God's will. We are obligated to proclaim it without adjustment. We are obligated to proclaim it without adjustment. We sow the seed. Sometimes we water the seed. It's always God who brings forth the increase. (laughs) So, Paul here says, God owns it. Don't mess with it. I think it's pretty simple, don't you? By God's grace, let us be those who demonstrate and preach the gospel in its purity and truth for God's glory and for the accomplishment of His will. Let's pray together. Father, we look at these things and we we marvel that You saved someone that we would run away from. You saved someone that we would never even want to talk to. And then You supplied for us this example of of a life that's changed because of Jesus Christ and Your Gospel, we ask that You'd help us that we would believe You, that we would trust You that Your, your Gospel is, is true and right, that it impacts us not only unto salvation but through our Christian lives as well, and by Your grace, it will bring us to glorification where we will look just like and, and, and enjoy forever the righteousness of Christ in full bloom. We ask that you'd help us that we would proclaim your word, your gospel, in truth, without adjustment. We're so thankful for you and for your word and for your saving us. Father, we think of anyone here this morning that is not really sure what this gospel is all about. I pray, Father, you would open their eyes as they realize their insufficiency and the reality that Jesus the perfect spotless son your son gave himself on the cross to bear their sin that they might have life that he might provide for them righteousness if they will trust him Father we know you can only, only you can do this and we, we commit each one here ourselves. We commit ourselves to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.